We're looking at Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. It's a familiar parable, but one that we need to hear, not just for somebody else, but for ourselves. Let's give attention to God's word. He also told this parable to some who trust in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, or prayed to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went home, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let me pray for us. Father, ask that you would speak now to each one of us, that we would be attentive to your word, and that we would see Lord, where we're clinging to ourselves and elevating ourselves over others. We pray that the gospel would be good news for our hearts this day, and that it would bring humility and love for others. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Has the Holy Spirit ever showed up at one of your prayer meetings? Jack Miller used to talk about that. He's the one who started World Harvest Mission, but he... The idea is that you're praying and all of a sudden you get convicted of sin for something that you're praying for. And one time I was praying, I was on my knees and I was praying for somebody in the church that wasn't getting along with my agenda and what I was wanting to accomplish. And they, did, they were kind of resisting me. And I was praying that, to God that God would show them that what I was doing was right. And then I actually said the words, and then they will thank me. And, and I was condemned, you know, like, man, I am rotten. That's really terrible. That's what Jesus is getting at here. This is a tip-off parable. You know what a tip-off parable is? A tip-off parable is it tells you before it tells you what the point is. So verse 9 tells you the whole point of the parable. There were people who were actually trusting in themselves that they were righteous. They actually thought they were righteous in themselves. There's probably some of you here this morning that think that way. And as a result, they treated others with contempt or disdain or scorn. They looked down on everybody else because they're just a little bit better. And so we have the problem, verse 9. This is the outlines in your bulletin. This is for my kids. Are you guys taking notes? They told me they like when there's an outline like Porter puts in there, so (laughs) they like that, so here we go. So we got the problem, the Pharisees' praises of himself, the tax collector's penitent prayer, and then the promise. So first of all, we have this problem, and the problem, we look at this and we think, oh, these Pharisees, they were just such a messed up group of people. The Pharisees... The word actually comes from this Hebrew word that means set apart. They were very zealous for the law, and they were alarmed, and they were disgusted 
because they were living in a time and a culture where they were seeing awful declines in morals and culture that was eroding around them. They saw a pagan environment, the government that they didn't agree with, its leaders, its leadership, and even in the church they weren't getting along with everybody, the synagogue, and they did, people weren't just doing enough. And they genuinely wanted to do something to preserve the religion and pass it on to future generations. They were, they were zealous. I mean, does that not like sound like a lot of like what the, what the Christian right is about today? Is it, you know, we see decline in morals in our culture, lack of influence in politics, lack of voice, the media seems to distort our message. And so the Pharisees, the, the answer was to remove oneself from the problem. Their answer was justification by segregation. Justification by separation. We are set apart. We remove ourselves from the, from the problem. Their, their key verse would have been bad company corrupts good morals. And so we just need to remove ourselves and set up our own little system. And so, you know, they would have been the first to abandon the city and head for the country. They would have been the first to get away from all the problems because they wanted to keep their noses clean. They were bringing about reform. Now, they got so caught up with their own plan and their own obedience that they started to tack on lots of things. And so they started to tack on, tack, uh, you know, add oral tradition. And they started following the tradition of the elders. And all of this was starting to add to the law of God, and it started getting more and more burdensome and burdensome. And the New Testament just starts to abound with these allusions to, the, to how meticulous they were and the minutiae of their legalism, the tithing of herbs, the wearing of like conspicuous tassels, the careful observance of ritual purity and ceremonial washings and frequent fastings and, and distinctions and how you make oaths. And it was just, it, and Jesus obviously just, conf, you know, just, it was a crash as, as Jesus and the Pharisees had two different agendas two different messages. And so in all of this, something was missing. It was their hypocrisy that they couldn't see as they missed the weightier matters of the law and instead were focusing on externals. And Jesus rebuked them because he's saying, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are just far from me. They cleanse the cup and their hands, but not their hearts. They're like whitewashed tombs, disguising an inner corruption. And the problem was the Pharisees, they couldn't see it. They compared themselves to those who were inferior to them, and they, they looked at all their duties of tithing and fasting and thought they were special. And I would just say to us this morning that the duties may change, but we're always flying to our performances to try to get an identity of who we are. I've told, I shared this years ago, when I was in South Carolina, one of my neighbors, I mean, his way of performing was he had a perfect lawn. And he, I mean, if you just looked up what green grass should look like, it would be his lawn. But then he put floodlights so that nobody would ever step on his yard. So if you got near his yard, all the floodlights would go on. I remember one time we had like, you know, like the kids were young and you'd fly those little, you know, wooden planes, you know, with the rubber band thing. And one of those went into his yard. And I was like mortified, like, what are we going to do? Like, you, don't, you can't step in that guy's yard, like everybody knows. So this guy was kind of kooky. I mean, 
he was kooky, but he didn't know it. But he thought he had a great lawn, and he used to come to our church sometimes. And one day he brought over a 50-pound bag of lime to deliver to my door because he let me know that, that you, to be a good witness, you got to have a nice yard. And he told me, you know, because I was one of the pastors of the church, and my yard just didn't measure up. So he brought the 50-pound bag of lime over to let me know the problem with your yard here is, you know, is I'm the problem. So I was getting the memo, good grass equals good witness, bad yard equals bad witness. I'm a bad witness. He's a good witness. The problem was everybody in the neighborhood knew the guy was trouble. My next-door neighbor, she was so worried about this guy. One day she was looking with binoculars at him and discovered that he was looking at binoculars at her. I mean, is that a freaky experience or what? Yeah! You know, she quickly threw the... I caught you looking at me. You were looking first. Is that weird? See, this... I have a neighbor now that, that some of the other neighbors are afraid to wash their car. Because one of the ladies came over and she saw me washing my car and she said, like, because the other, other neighbor, I mean, that's their righteousness is you don't wash your, your, your car because you're ruining the Chesapeake Bay. That is running off, it goes right down, and you're ruining the Chesapeake Bay, and all those birds and all those things are dying because you're washing your car. So I'm just, and I wash my car all the time, you know. Like I, I got several of them, you know, we're washing them. I, I guess I don't measure up with my neighbors. Well, those are kooky examples, but I think a Washington Pharisee would pray his prayer like this today. God, I thank you that I'm like, not like other men who are uneducated and underperforming and using the government and out of shape. I have my master's degree. I'm working on my doctorate. My children are straight-A students. They play sports year-round. They all play on elite teams. I work out five times a week for 80 minutes. I keep track of how many steps I take. I burn 800 calories while I exercise. I only eat healthy foods, low on the carbs, no sugar. I recycle everything. I drive a hybrid, and I go to church regularly as long as it doesn't interfere with my schedule. So tell me. How are your kids doing academically and athletically? And tell me about your diet, your workout plan, your car, and yuck. And we live with that because you have these conversations with people all the time and you're not even realizing how much you're being compared with how are you measuring up to their plan and their identity that's based on their identity of their righteousness of where are they getting a right standing to say that I'm just a little bit better than you. And it works out okay as long as you've got your health as long as your kids are doing well and as long as you've got nice amounts of money and you can you can play the game but eventually god just starts to pull the plug on these things and it's going to happen to all of us richard lovelace in his classic book on spiritual dynamics says christians who are no longer sure that god loves and accepts them in jesus apart from their present spiritual achievements for losers, for people who didn't have quiet times this week, that didn't do all the praying they should have and memorized all these verses that they should have, the people that, that, aren't, that apart from their present spiritual achievements are subconsciously radically insecure persons, much less secure than non-Christians because of the constant bulletins they receive from the Christian environment about the holiness of God and the righteousness they're supposed to have. Their insecurity shows itself in pride 
a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness and defensive criticism of others. They come naturally to hate other cultural styles in other races in order to bolster their own security. You wonder where racism comes from? It comes from this. And discharge their suppressed anger. They cling desperately to legal, pharisaical righteousness, but envy, jealousy, and other branches on the tree of sin grow out of their fundamental insecurity. The Pharisees forgot the purpose of the law, and they made their own laws. The law was given to mirror the holiness of God, and it was to show our unholiness. It was to be a schoolmaster to reveal our sin. The law doesn't perfect you. The law doesn't sanctify you. The law is powerless. It's good. It's righteous, but it has no power, and you don't have the power to keep it. So John Bunyan says in his pithy quote, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Look again at the difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector. One's living for the law, one's living for the gospel. What about you this morning? The Pharisee comes to God with a haughty spirit, not a humble spirit. No petitions, only pride. The Pharisee thought God needed help from him. The tax collector knew he needed help from God. The Pharisee comes to God sufficient in himself, the tax collector insufficient. The Pharisee is conceited, the tax collector is contrite. The Pharisee comes boasting, the tax collector comes broken. The Pharisee was really showy, the tax collector was really sorry. The Pharisee thought he was worthy of God. The tax collector knew he was unworthy. The Pharisee's business with God was perfunctory. The tax collector's business with God was propitiation. The object of the Pharisee's prayer was, was his merits. The object of the tax collector's prayer was God's mercy. The Pharisee is deceived by his heart. The tax collector is desperate because of his heart. The Pharisee made a comparison. The tax collector made a confession. The Pharisee saw his saintliness the tax collector saw his sinfulness. The Pharisee needed to be seen by men. The tax collector needed to be heard by God. Both men left with their needs being met. How about you this morning? You see, the bottom line was the Pharisee saw God as someone that was to be indebted to him and that he should be thanked. And the tax collector saw himself as a debtor to God. The grounds for justification were completely different. The one appeals to mercy Mercy of God, the other to the merits of man. What do you appeal to God when you go to him? The great missionary to the Indians, David Brainerd, wrote this in his journal that Jonathan Edwards published. He said, though I often confess to God that I, of course, deserve nothing, yet I still harbored a secret hope of recommending myself to God by all these duties and all this morality. When I prayed affectionately and felt some, some melting of my heart and love to him, I hoped God would thereby be moved to care for me. So I thought that through my repenting and praising him and seeking him, I could make good steps towards heaven. When my heart, still, when my heart seemed full of love and faith, I felt that God would be affected by that and would hear my prayers for their sincerity. In other words, I healed myself with my duties. I told myself, God must accept you because look at how wholeheartedly you serve and seek him. Now, here was the problem. When I had been fasting, praying, obey, obeying, I thought I was aiming at the glory of God, but I was doing it all for my own glory, to feel I was worthy 
And as long as I was doing all this to earn my salvation, I was doing nothing for God, all for me. I realized that all my struggling to become worthy was an exercise in self-worship. I was trying to avoid God as Savior to be my own Savior. I was not worshiping Him, but using Him. And then at that time, the true way of salvation opened to my mind. I saw so much of its wisdom and suitableness and excellence that I wondered how I was ever blind to it. I wonder why everyone did not see this way of salvation, not by my contrivances, but entirely by the righteousness of Christ. The Pharisee praises himself, does he not? Look at how many eyes he can get out in two verses. So you look at this this passage in the Pharisee's prayer, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Well, he's got five eyes in two verses. Who's the subject? I mean, top ladies hymn, Rock of Ages says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. The Pharisee's hymn was, plenty in my hands I bring, simply to thy works I cling. Several things are really off in this prayer. Is there any praise of God in his prayer? No. Any thanksgiving? Well, it's all about himself. He's not thanking God. Any petitions? None. Any acknowledgement of his spiritual poverty? Any confession of sin? Nope, nope, nope. He even tells God that he ties on all that I get. Boy, that's a kicker. He completely rewrites Deuteronomy 8 about our pride that forgets that God's the one who's providing for us. And he says, I give tithe all I get. Really? Well, First Chronicles 29 says, both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all, and in your hand are power and might, and it's in your hand to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able to offer, thus to offer willingly, for all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. Does that sound anything like the Pharisee? acknowledging that God is the one who gives us everything? Perhaps the most fatal flaw of all, though, is there's no reference to atonement in his devotion. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not as like other men. There's no plea. There's no atonement needed for him. There's no need for him to go to the temple. You see, the Pharisee really believes that God should thank him. God's indebted to him. Spurgeon had a sermon, and it's called Too Good to be Saved on this text. And he says this about the spirit of the Pharisee and thinking that God is indebted to you. He says this. This is just one of his many insights, but he says, these type of people, they kick against the doctrine of election, that God is the one who saves his people. He says they kick against the doctrine of election, for instance. That they say that for God to save one person and not another is wrong, for, that, for they have as much claim upon him as others have, which is true, for they have no claim at all, just as others have none at all. Yet their very opposition to God's exercise of his sovereign rights proves that deep down in their hearts, they believe that they have some claim upon him and that God is in some sense their debtor. Do you believe that God has free will? And he freely saves who he wants to save? Because that's what the Bible teaches. But there's a deep-rooted pride here that's in this tax uh, Pharisee. And Augustine says in the city of God, that is the hallmark calling card of the city of man, is pride. 
And it's the main difference between the city of God and the city of God. The one city is a humble city. The other city is a proud city. The one city loves God. The other city loves self. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, this classic quote where he says, whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel good, making us feel that we are good, above all, that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on not by God but by the devil. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or you see yourself as a small, dirty object. It's better to forget about yourself altogether. But there is something about being righteous. When we're in the right and someone else is in the wrong, we have all the goods. That's a scary place to be, isn't it? Because we get to be the police. We get to be the prosecutor, we get to be the judge, we get to be the jury, we get to be the parole officer, we get to be the jailer, we even get to be the chaplain. We gather up the evidence, we form the opening arguments, we call the witnesses, we bring them before a court of law, and we execute a verdict. Lazy or diligent, procrastinator, achiever, faithful follower or faithless, sinner or saint. And we get to, and when we're doing good, boy, we can, all of a sudden we got the goods to, to bring it to somebody. Watch out. Watch out. Robert Murray McChain said that self-righteousness is the largest idol of the human heart. It's the largest. It's the big tumor. It's the big one. It's the softball-sized one that's got to come out every Sunday. Do the surgery. This idol which man loves most and God hates most. Dearly beloved, you will always be going back to this idol. You're always trying to be something in yourself to gain God's favor by thinking little of your sin or by looking to your repentance, tears, prayers, or looking to your religious exercises, your feelings, or looking to your graces, the Spirit's work in your heart. Beware of false Christ. Study sanctification to the utmost, but make not a Christ of it. God hates this idol more than any other because it comes in the place of Christ and it sits on Christ's throne. That, that, that pretty much nails it. The tax collector... He doesn't have to be convinced that he's a sinner. He knows it. He doesn't say, God, be merciful to me, a saint, does he? He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he knows he's not a small sinner in need of a small savior because he's got small little sins. He's a big sinner in need of a big savior because he's got big sins. Jonathan Edwards in his resolution, number eight, good reminder, he said he was resolved to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody had been so vile as I, and as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others, and that I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself and prove only an occasion of my confessing my own sins and misery to God. I mean, what would happen if we actually did that? Can you imagine? I don't do that. I bellyache when I see other people's sins. And I forget to see them in myself. We need that. The word for mercy here that he says, be merciful to me, it's not the typical Greek word for mercy. It's not elios. It's this word that means mercy seat or propitiation. That's a big word and I'll explain it. The tax collector is asking that God would provide propitiation for him. And propitiation is, Lord, turn your wrath away from me. Be satisfied by pouring out your justice on someone else. And so the way they would do it is you would come and you would put both hands on the head of the, of the animal that was being sacrificed in this 
and the priest would slit its throat while your hands were on top of it and the blood would flow and there was a transfer that you knew that sheep got what I deserved. My sin was transferred to this animal and that animal died on my behalf. Well, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. It was all pointing forward to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so he is acknowledging his need for a savior, for propitiation. But there's more than that. There's righteousness. Listen to this R.C. Sproul quote. This is like my favorite R.C. Sproul quote, okay? These, this, if you get this, you get something big. So if you don't get anything else in the message, this is, I listen to this sermon like three times this week. He says, we will often ask a six-year-old in Sunday school, what did Jesus do for you? And the child will say, he died on the cross for my sin. And that's true. But had Jesus just, boom, come down from heaven on Good Friday, just popped in as a full-grown adult, jumped in and, and went to the cross on the, on the Via Della Rosa, if, if he just did that, took your sin upon him, paid the price before holy God, would that have been enough to redeem you? The answer is no. That would have been enough to take away your guilt. That would have been enough to remove your punishment. But what it wouldn't do would be to supply you with the righteousness that God requires from every human being. That's why Jesus had to be born. He had to live under the law. He had to come, what we call live a perfect act of obedience so that in his obedience, he accrued for himself perfect righteousness. And it's that righteousness then that is transferred to the account of every person who puts their trust in him and him alone. So what did Jesus do for you? He lived a whole obedient life on my behalf. And then he went to a cross and died on, on the cross for my sins. There's passive obedience and there's active obedience. This is what takes away your sins. This is what makes you righteous. His perfect obedient life transferred to your account. You give him all your sins, he gives you all his righteousness and you become justified. That is the gospel. That's what imputation means is we have a righteousness that's not our own. We give Jesus our sins, he gives us our righteousness. And we have an alien righteousness, something that came from outside of us, from God. That's what Luther discovered. And Luther put it like this. He says, this is that mystery which is rich in divine grace to sinners, wherein by a wonderful exchange, our sins are no longer ours, but Christ. And the righteousness of Christ, not Christ, but ours. He has emptied himself of his righteousness that he might clothe us with it and fill us with it. And he has taken our evils upon himself that he might deliver us from them. Learn Christ and him crucified. Learn to pray to him in despairing of yourself. Say, Lord Jesus, you're my righteousness, but I'm your sin. You have taken upon yourself what is mine and you have given me what is yours. You have taken upon yourself what you were not and have given me what I was not. You see, that leads to the promise. He who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And here's what humility looks like. Tim Keller, one of my favorite quotes by him, he says, a Christian comes to say, though I have often failed to obey the moral law, the deeper problem was why was I trying to obey it? 
Even my efforts to obey it have been just a way of me seeking to be my own savior. The irreligious don't repent at all, and the religious only repent of their sins, but Christians repent of their righteousness. Have you seen that the best things you've ever done are filthy rags in the sight of God? They will do nothing to bring you any favor before God. It's like going to the teller at the bank and handing over green Monopoly money and asking them, you know, hey, can you cash these blue bills and these pink ones? And they look at you like, what, what are you talking about? This doesn't work here. Your righteousness doesn't work in heaven because you have none. We are bankrupt and it is all tainted with sin. The only merits we have are dumb merits. The promise is if you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. A lady once came up to John Gershner after one of his sermons, and, if, and that was Sproul's mentor, and he had been preaching on sin, and the lady came up and was angry, and she said, you made me feel this big. And, and Gershner got, he said, oh man, that's, that's way too big. <laughs> and then he said, if Jesus is gonna save you, you have to repent of that. Repent of that. Repent of your righteousness. See, it's one thing to repent of your sin, but repent of your righteousness. Repent of all the good things that you've done so that your trust is truly in Christ. So as Luther said, Lord Jesus, you're my righteousness, but I'm your sin. That is the gospel. You rest in that and you are free. Let's pray. Lord, we come sinners running into your arms, thanking you for your embrace, your great, great love that has taken all of our sin, past, present, and future, and put them on your shoulders and marched up to the tree and gave yourself for us. We thank you that our debt was nailed to a tree thousands of years ago. And we thank you that you've imputed your righteousness to us so that through one man's obedience, the many would become righteous. And so, Lord, we come by faith clinging to the cross. Foul we to the fountain we fly. Naked come to the you for dress. Lord, you be our all in all. Lord, we come repenting of all of our goodness, seeing it as insufficient. We cling to you. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.